Robert Frost's famous poem, The Road Less Traveled, the poet describes a man who comes to a fork in the road and he has to make a choice. There are two options, two ways. To take one means not to take the other. The Bible also teaches that there are two possible paths in life, two ways that a man or a woman, a boy or girl, can walk in this life. Let me show you a couple of examples, and then we'll see how these play out for our text today. In Psalm 1, for example, we read about the man who's blessed, who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Verse 4, the ungodly are not so. They are like the chaff which the wind drives away. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Two ways. The way of the ungodly, sinners, scorners, leading to judgment and death, or the way of the righteous leading to life. This theme runs throughout the Bible. Jesus presented that two-way paragram in multiple paradigm, I'm sorry, in multiple talks, such as in Luke 9, where he teaches the disciples the two paths. He says, he says to them in Luke 9, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, uh, will, for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? One way, try to save your life and you lose it. The other way, lose your life and in so doing you will save it. And we can multiply the examples, uh, but why do I bring this up? Because the same two paths, the same choice, the same two paradigms are clearly seen and taught in the book of Galatians. Uh, we'll see it clearly this morning, though, uh, described not as two paths or two ways, but it's an option between walking in the flesh or walking in the spirit. Look at Galatians 5, 16 and 17. I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the lust, for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. These two are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things you wish. Two ways of living, in the flesh or in the spirit. This morning, before we get to the fruit of the spirit of love, joy, peace and the rest, we're going to take a sermon to consider what it means to walk in the Spirit. So let me summarize for you the basic theme of the sermon this morning. Living life in the Spirit is a humble, intentional, and perpetual choice to live in the power, the priorities, and the presence of the Holy Spirit and fulfilling God's law through the fruit of that relationship. That's a lot. It's a mouthful. Let me do it again slowly. Living life in the Spirit is a humble, intentional, and perpetual choice to live in the power, priorities, and presence of the Holy Spirit in fulfilling God's law through the fruit of that relationship. Let's ask the Lord's blessing as we look into the text. Father, we do need your Holy Spirit's presence and work to illumine these texts to us. I pray for me that I will present your word accurately I pray, Father, that your spirit will apply it to the hearts and minds as you see fit. And may you be glorified through this process this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're working our way through the book of Galatians. We have learned that no one will ever achieve heaven through human effort, through good works. And over the last five sermons, we looked at what it means to walk in the flesh, in the fruit, uh, in the fruit of that flesh. You might expect I would jump right into the fruit of the spirit, but I thought it would be worthwhile to stop just one sermon and take a moment to reflect on what it means to walk in the Spirit. When I did that earlier in chapter 5, verse 16, 
uh, I was I kind of took a different tangent, but now I want to go back to that and spend a little bit just today uh, reflecting on what that means to walk in the Spirit. First, I want to make several observations about the flesh and the Spirit together. So this is going to be a three-part sermon. Uh, the first one is observations of the relationship of flesh and spirit. The second, we'll talk about walking in the spirit, what it is not. And the third section, we'll talk about what it is. So three observations about the flesh and the spirit. First thing I'd like you to note is the antithesis between the flesh and the spirit. So we need to understand that the flesh and the spirit should not be thought of as two unrelated options that have nothing to do with one another. Scripture does not describe them as neutral uh, acquaintances, but rather as mortal enemies. We read in Romans 8, 7, The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. That's from Paul Romans 8. The carnal mind, then, is enmity against God. The two are at war with one another. They're antithetical. We see this also in Galatians 5.17. The flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. These are contrary to one another. The Christian, then, the second part, the second part I'd like to make in relationship of these two, the flesh and the spirit, is the Christian is a bit of a mixed bag. Though we walk, uh, the walking in the flesh and walking in the spirit are antithetical to each other, uh, as over and against one another. The reality is that the Christians who have been regenerated by the Spirit of God and has the Spirit dwelling in them still have remaining flesh. This is what the Scripture teaches us. Thus, there is an internal war that every Christian has to wage. We just read in Galatians five seventeen: the flesh lusts against the Spirit. These two are contrary to one another, so that you don't do the things that you wish. Which one will win the battle, the flesh or the spirit, depends on which one you feed more. Feed the flesh and you fall deeper into sin, sometimes very deeply. Feed the spirit through the means of grace and no victory over sin. A good description of this, of course, is Romans 7, where we see the battle raging in the life of Paul. Though a Christian is indwelt then by the spirit of God, the remaining flesh means that the Christian will not, this side of heaven, ever achieve some state of perfection, which is contrary to some denominational teachings. Nonetheless, the Christian can, through the power of the Spirit, know the real and sanctifying work of the Spirit in his or her life. Paul describes the, this in the past tense in 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 9 through 11. <clears throat> You're familiar with this passage where he describes the Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners. None of these, he says, will inherit the kingdom of God. But he says, and such were some of you. You were washed. You were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. What does that mean? That means that pornography, addictions, fear, anxiety worry, habitual lying, people-pleasing, unthankfulness, envy, worldliness, discontentment, impatience, despair. The Bible addresses all of these, and you can find real and lasting freedom to the slavery of any and all of these sins when you exercise the means of grace in the power of the Spirit, when you walk in the Spirit. The third point... 
both the flesh and the spirit produce fruit. We've already gone through the several weeks of analyzing the fruit of the, uh, the works of the flesh. That's usually what the way Paul describes it. Um, the works of the flesh ultimately result, as Paul says, in bondage. Either bondage to some kind of a works righteousness, where the hope is that the scales will tilt in your favor and judgment. That's a bondage, thinking I've got to keep working to, to earn heaven. Or in bondage to your lusts, when you just throw out the law entirely, rather than falling under it, you jettison entirely, and you fall in bondage to your lust and addictions and habitual sin patterns. Paul contrasts that life with the life in the spirit. <clears throat> we see it in the next verses when we study uh, when we study uh, Galatians 5, 22 to 24. We'll go through those, Lord willing, those uh, weeks ahead. But we see that as when one walks in the flesh of the spirit, we're going to see the fruit that is consistent with the path that he or she has chosen. Now, Jesus tells us this in Matthew 7, 17. He says, even so, every good tree bears fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by your fruits you will know them. If you look across the page of Galatians 6, 8, you see Paul say the same thing. In verse 8 he says, For he who sows to his, uh, sows to his flesh will reap of the flesh, uh, will of the flesh reap corrupt, corruption. But he who sows to the spirit will of the spirit reap everlasting life. Two paths. Two ways, two trees, good and bad, both produce the evidence of the spiritual condition of the tree that produces that fruit. Let's talk for a moment about what this walking in the spirit is not, because there's a lot of misinformation about that. I'm going to give you six different ways in which we can understand what walking in the spirit is not. <clears throat> First, walking in the spirit is not tapping into some kind of impersonal energy force. Too often we start and we start to think in Star Wars categories of some kind of universal force that we can tap into. If the Holy Spirit, uh, uh, as if the Holy Spirit is some kind of energy or force, that if we just dial it in right, we're going to have the power in our lives for, for Christ and live his way. Uh, but in Star Wars, the energy was an impersonal force employed, employed by both sides. You remember both the evil and the good, whatever those were in Star Wars, sometimes it's hard to tell. <clears throat> but both of them, both sides of it were tapping into that kind of impersonal energy force. That's not what walking in the spirit is. For the Christian, we're not tapping into a force. We're recognizing the reality that when we are converted, we are indwelt by a person, the person of the Holy Spirit of God, the same spirit who was the active agent in creation and of the cosmos. The Holy Spirit, besides being omnipotent, is one of the persons of the Godhead. He's not an impersonal force, but one of the persons of the triune God who indwells the believer and comes to his or her aid in resisting sin and illuminating the word and giving wisdom and discernment, empowering them to say no to the flesh, to crucify the flesh, to say yes to God on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment basis. Second, Walking in the Spirit is not some kind of higher plane of Christian spirituality, a plane that some achieve and others do not. There's not an on-off switch from operating completely in the flesh to completely in the Spirit. We are not to look for some kind of Christian perfectionism then. This side of the grave, our best works will always be tainted with some kind of flesh until we reach heaven. So we need to be careful of thinking of walking in the Spirit as a kind of 
not to think of it as a kind of higher life to which only the really spiritual can attain, like a kind of two-tiered Christianity. Many of us grew up with that idea of the carnal Christian who walks the aisle at a young age, shows no fruit of it their, their whole life until later, around 30, 40, 50 years old. Uh, they say, oh, well, now uh, it just seems like this hasn't really worked out. And uh, they're told, well, what you need to do, you're already converted. You already have the Holy Spirit. You just need to realize the Holy Spirit. You just need to uh, walk in the Spirit. This is like the second stage of your Christian walk now. <clears throat> the idea of the carnal Christian. And the cure was then to not repent and become saved for the first time, really, but to just walk in the Spirit. That's not the testimony of Scripture. Rather, walking in the Spirit is presented by Paul as a normal Christian life in which we are sanctified more and more into the image of Christ through the consistent use of the means of grace. Third thing we need to note about walking in the Spirit, I'm going to take a little bit more time on this one, and that is the walking in the Spirit is not passive. When you look at verse 22, what do you read? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, etc. Look, if you look over at John 15 for just a moment, let me show you a parallel passage. In John 15... We read verse 5, I am the vine, Jesus is speaking, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. I think that many people misread this passage this way. They think, well, when you walk through the apple orchard, they'll use this illustration, I've heard it used. When you walk through the apple orchard, you don't hear the trees groaning and saying to themselves, produce fruit, produce fruit, and then here comes out an apple or an orange, whatever it is. But again, in uh, John 15, I don't think that's what he is saying. The obvious lesson for people who think that way is that the fruit of the Spirit is a byproduct of tapping into the trunk of Jesus. You don't try to produce it. That would be legalism. You just sort of abide. You just sort of rest in there, and it just automatically the fruit gets popped out. I think it's a misunderstanding of the passage as well as what it means to live life in the Spirit. The point here is that the fruit of the Spirit is a byproduct of life in Christ. That is, uh, that which is produced, the fruit doesn't come first, the tree does. You first are abiding in Christ, the fruit comes from that. The good works of the Christian then don't proceed, the fruit doesn't precede the relationship, the relationship produces the fruit. And so it's a product, the fruit is a product of the relationship. To walk then in the spirit doesn't mean to let go and let God or tell Jesus to take the wheel as if you are relieved of all responsibility. Let's make a distinction here, I think maybe this is helpful, to make a distinction between justification and sanctification. Justification is monergistic, that means the work of one. The work of God, the Holy Spirit, regenerates us with a new life in a spirit. But sanctification is synergistic. That's the work of more than one. This is you working with God through the means of grace. Uh, it's the, the process of being made more holy into the image of Christ involves more than the Holy Spirit. It involves you. As you make choices to obey God, to trust God, to follow God, deny yourself, the Holy Spirit is at work in you producing the fruit of that obedience. You will produce the fruit of the Spirit seen here in John 15:5, and back in our passage in Galatians. That's the natural consequence of walking. So walking in the Spirit is not passivity. And I might add for the men, it's not effeminacy either. By the way, let's not fall into the other ditch and say that walking in the Spirit is just doing the right thing. What God wants us to do is if we're saying, okay, well, the fruit is a byproduct, so 
the Holy Spirit will show up later once I just kind of, you know, um, try hard and try to do all these good things. And, and the Lord and the Spirit will show up as a byproduct of that. It's not a kind of stoic pull yourself up by the bootstrap and uh, spirituality. The fruit of the Spirit is a product of what is called the mystical union. I don't know if many of you all have heard that. It's one that's used in a number of theological contexts. Uh, it's the, the result of union with Christ. We've already talked about that earlier in the book of Galatians. I won't repeat it here. But let's think about what that means, this, the mystical union. A.A. A. Hodge describes it this way. He says we de- describe it as mystical <clears throat> because it so far transcends all the analogy of earthly relationships in the intimacy of its connection, in the transforming power of its influence, and in the excellence of its consequences. <clears throat> so we don't, again, want to think of it as we do the good things, God produces the fruit later. It's in conjunction with the Holy Spirit, we make choices, we study his word, we use the means of grace in conjunction with a submission to the Holy Spirit, and the Lord blesses us with the fruit that comes from that. Calvin puts it this way in regarding the spirit is not just about passivity. Calvin says, if we would obey the spirit, we must labor and fight and apply our utmost energy. And we must begin with self-denial. We'll get to that in just a moment. Let me give you three more. These will be very brief. We said that it's not about being passive and it's not um, tapping into some kind of force or some, some kind of special plane. Fourthly, we're saying it's not a charismatic experience where the spirit is unleashed inside of you so that you can do somersaults or jump pews or speak in some kind of weird mystical language. Fifth, it's also not a still small voice in your head that tells you to wear that suit today or take a right at the next light. It doesn't reveal new information about the future or when he will return. Sixth, and finally... It's, uh, walking in the Spirit is contrary to what the prosperity preachers preach. Walking in the Spirit doesn't free you from trials or automatically multiply your bank account. So with that kind of garbage in the past, let's throw that in the back. and Let's now talk about what it is to walk in the Spirit. If walking in the Spirit is not of those things, what is it? Look back at their text of verse 25. You'll see Paul writes, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in in the Spirit. And Paul is saying here that if you have been regenerated, that is given life by the Spirit, then you should live in a manner consistent with that reality. If the Holy Spirit indwells you, then you should live your life with the assurance and the awareness of His presence and protection, uh, with His priorities always before you and in His power. <clears throat> Paul uses a couple of phrases to describe it. As we see in verses 16 and 25, he uses the word walk in the Spirit. And in verse 18, he says, led by the Spirit. They're very similar terms, but there are a couple of important distinctions that we can draw and nuances. So let's look at each one of these individually. First of all, we see the word walk in verses 16 and 25. Now, if you're reading just an English version, you don't understand that actually Paul uses two different Greek words when he uses the word walk. In verse 16, it's a different word than he uses in verse 25. In verse 16, when he says walk, It means going the full circle. This is what the the Greek word means. Describing one who incorporates the work of spirit into all areas of life. It is comprehensive. Now, the other word for walk in verse 25 means to walk behind a leader or to keep in step. Paul uses it again in chapter 6, verse 16, as many as walk according to this rule. It refers to what Paul has revealed about 
circumcision earlier. So with these two different Greek words translated walk in the English, you get a fuller understanding of what it means to walk in the spirit. It's comprehensive. It's all of life and a relationship with walking in step with God's spirit. Again, we also see that word led uh, that uh, Paul uses. This Greek word that Paul uses employs for our English, it's, we use the, we, the Greek word that Paul uses uh, for our English word led refers to forces or influences affecting the mind. It might help to think of it as in contrast to the flesh in which we are led by our passions rather than the Holy Spirit. So you think of the flesh and the spirit, and the flesh we're led by our passions, and the spirit we're led by the Holy Spirit. Paul uses that same word in another context. Maybe it's helpful. Paul writes in Second uh, Timothy 3, 6, For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts. So it's describing those who are being led by their passions, by their lusts. We see this in verse 24 of our passage, Galatians 5:24. Those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So if you're led by the Spirit, that means you're not led by your passions, your priorities, your agenda. You're led by God's agenda, God's priorities. To capture the idea of being led by the Spirit better, I want to read an excerpt from one commentator that I thought captures this idea well. It's a paragraph long, so bear with me. But he says this, For the Spirit of God always leads for their profit and advantage, for the spiritual delight, pleasure, and comfort of their souls. He leads out of the ways of sin and so of ruin and destruction and from Mount Sinai and all dependence on legal and moral righteousness. He leads to Christ to his person for shelter, safety, and salvation, to his blood for pardon and cleansing, to his righteousness for justification, and to his fullness for every supply of grace. He leads into the presence of God and to his house and ordinances. He leads into the covenant of grace, to the blessings, promises, and mediator of it. He leads into all truth as it is in Jesus, in the ways of faith and truth, in the paths of righteousness and holiness, and always in a right way, though sometimes in a rough one, to the city of their habitation. He leads from one degree of grace to another and at last to glory, all which he does gradually. He leads by little and little into man's sinfulness and to see his interest in Christ and by degrees into the doctrines of the gospel and the everlasting love of the three persons and proportionally to the strength he gives as they are able to bear. Now such persons as these have nothing to fear from the law of God, let's end quote. What do we make of these truths? Let's uh, apply them for us. How is the Christian then to walk in the spirit? Certainly one of the most obvious ways we walk in the spirit is through the means of grace that God has ordained, including worship, Bible study, prayer, and service. But I think we use that word means of grace pretty often from the pulpit. Perhaps we uh, just sort of rush it over and say, well, that's one of those reformed expressions. Let's think about what that means in just, for just a moment. Those who are unfamiliar, unfamiliar with the means of grace, it refers to the ways in which the Christian enjoys the favor of God. The Bible's clear that these means, these ways, are not, they're not determined by man, uh, but rather by God himself. He says, this is how you enjoy my favor. If we were in one of the classes recently on the benedictions, we talked about Numbers 6, 24 to 25, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord 
make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Well, what will cause the Lord's face to shine upon you and cause him to be gracious to you? We read in Isaiah 66, 2, this one, God says, to this one will I look on him who is poor and of contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. So that means that our walking in the spirit begins with a humble submitting to God and his will for us. It's spelled out very clearly by James when he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, James continues, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Certainly this is part and parcel of what it means to walk in the spirit. God's priorities are ours and we submit to that humbly before him. We draw near to him in the process and uh, we, uh, we flee from the devil, resist him. How do you draw near to God? I think we want to be careful here and not just fall into a kind of formula of do the means of grace. Read your Bible, go to church, worship. Like it's a kind of checklist. Those of us who are list people or task-oriented have to be particularly careful. Maybe it would be helpful to use a term that was employed by R.C. Sproul. It's still used in the Table Talk magazine where he uses the expression quorum deo, which means to live your life in the face of God, recognizing he is present with you by virtue of his omnipresence, but also by the special presence of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. When you read the scriptures, you don't just read the words in the page and check off your read-through-the-Bible checklist. You begin with prayer, thanking the Lord for his word and asking him to illumine the word so that you will both understand it and apply it to your life. When you exercise your spiritual gifts of ministering the word or serving others, you do so with a conscious reflection on his presence and his favor, thanking him for the privilege of that service in his kingdom. Before you usher at the doors, change the diapers in the nursery, bake bread in the kitchen, or teach a Sunday school class, thank the Lord for his presence and his favor and pray for his will to be done through you. Let's be honest and admit that we often fall into some kind of habitual service or routines. We can easily neglect this personal element of walking with God. So remember the scripture I gave at the beginning of the sermon about walking in the spirit, a humble, intentional, and perpetual choice to live in the power, the priorities, and the presence of the Holy Spirit and fulfilling God's law through the fruit of that relationship I use the word intentional there on purpose, intentionally. It's there to prevent that kind of mechanical use of the beads of grace and the emphasis on that personal presence of God's Holy Spirit as we live our lives as believers. There's a passage of scripture, I think there's another one like Galatians. Of course, Romans is the much expanded version of Galatians. I'd like to close with a passage out of Romans. I encourage you to turn there, Romans 6. And I'd like you, as I read this slowly, I'd like you to think about it in light of what we have considered this morning, about what it is to walk in the Spirit, what it is to follow God in faith and obedience. Beginning in verse 9, Romans 6, I'm sorry, verse 11. Romans 6, verse 11. <clears throat> Again, listen to this in light of what we've heard this morning. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts, obey it in its lusts. 
Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, for salvation that is, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you are slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Brothers and sisters, walk in the Spirit and keep walking in the Spirit until the Lord returns or calls you home. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these wonderful words from Paul and of Jesus and John reminding us of that need to walk in the Spirit, to walk in that life to which you have regenerated us. I pray for each one of us, Father, that that life would not be one of a burdened obedience, but of a joyful submission to your will, that we would live our lives in love for one another so that we might reflect the glory of our God, and we pray in his name. Amen.